If you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to Psalms 32, or however you have your copy of God's Word. It's right in the middle. That usually helps it, makes it a little easier to find. Um, before I read God's Word, just want to remind you why we read it all every week, because we really do believe that this is God's Word. And we're here not to hear from me, but to hear from God. So if you are able, would you stand with me as we read Psalms 32? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. The strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with brit or brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would do what we just sang. We ask that you would open up our eyes, that you would help us see Jesus. Help us see how this text in Psalms 32 reveals Jesus Christ as all your word does. Help our ears to be open to listen, not to my voice, but to your voice, God, and to what you say in your word. Open our hearts that we would behold you, that we wouldn't just see you and sense you and listen to you, but that you would gather and wrap us up, that our affections would be drawn towards you. Lord, help us be a people who see and who love Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. There's a story of a young boy who went to visit his grandparents for the summer, and he had just been given his first slingshot. So he's pretty excited about this, and he went out in the woods to try and practice, but because he was new, didn't really know what he was doing, he struggled to even hit the trees with these rocks. So after a while, you know, he kind of got tired and went back to the house, but then he spotted his grandma's pet duck named Harold. So like any good boy would do, he took out the rock and tried to take aim and was surprised when he hit that duck right on the head. He was more surprised when he got closer and saw that the duck was dead. And he was filled with horror and guilt and panic. And so he took the duck in a panic and he tried to go and hide it and bury it in the woodpile where maybe his grandma wouldn't notice but then as he finished with the woodpile and looked up, he saw there was his grandma right in the window doing the dishes, seeming like she was looking his way. So he was mortified. He went inside, but his grandma had didn't say anything yet. No, rather, she just asked him, hey, come and help me with these dishes. 
So he quickly obliged, and he spent all day long helping his grandma out with every single chore that she asked him in the house, all the while just filled with dread and guilt, wondering when she would bring it up or if she noticed. Finally, after he felt like he was going to throw up, he confessed his crime to her with snotty tears. His grandma told him, I saw it. I love you, and I forgive you. It's okay. And when he heard this sound of forgiveness from his grandma, his relief flooded over his body and he cried just even more. But mostly these were happy tears because his suffering was over and he'd been forgiven. Maybe you haven't killed your grandma's duck, but we all have some kind of sin or guilt that we carry that we need forgiveness from. But ultimately, in the lasting forgiveness, it can't come from others and it can't come from inside ourselves either. It can only come from Jesus the forgiveness that we need, and how blessed it is to be forgiven. That's what our psalm is really about this morning, is the blessing that comes from the forgiveness of sins and the relief that that boy felt in the story. It can and it should and indeed must be experienced by every single believer. So that's what we're going to talk about as we look at Psalms 32. And so our first point in your bulletin, if you were taking notes, is that God forgives confessing sinners. God forgives confessing sinners. Now, the, the psalm, it begins with a strange Hebrew word, which I, I didn't read at the beginning, kind of these headings, right? It says a mascal of David. And then if you even go and, and look and you have a footnote, it'll probably just say like, ah, musical or liturgical term. So if you've wondered, well, what does that mean? Well, most Bible scholars are saying, well, we've got guesses, but we honestly don't know either. It means something. Right? And we have to remember, too, that these psalms, they were originally songs, and they were prayers, that these were part of the normal and regular pattern of worship for Israel. So they would sing them when they gathered, they would pray them when they were home and as they were walking around. So it's some kind of musical, liturgical, or worship instruction. It's meanings lost to us, but they would know what it meant. You know, it could have meant, you know, hey, play it low or sing it really loud. They tell them the kind of song it is, if it's in a minor key. The, the best guess I found maybe is that this is a teaching psalm, right? Maybe because it's a psalm that has some wisdom to impart to us. Maybe that's it. We, we honestly just don't know. But so even though we might not sing it this morning, uh, we can and maybe we should, but we can still learn from it. And he begins in verse 1 where he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What a blessing it is to be forgiven. And who can receive this forgiveness? What kind of sinner can be forgiven? Because you notice there's only one kind of sinner that's eligible for forgiveness, but it's the sinner that confesses. And David actually, he mentions three kinds of different sinners here in Psalms 32. He uses three different words for sin, and you see that. It comes across in English as well. He says transgression, sin, and iniquity. Now, I don't think David is just flexing his poetic muscles. Okay, he's not just showing us, he knows how to use the thesaurus. I think he's trying to make a point about different kinds of sin, because not all sin is equal, right? It's equally offensive to God, but it's not all on the same playing field. So first he describes a transgression. So this kind of sin, a transgression, is a willful rebellion against God. It's not a mistake. It's not just a lapse in judgment. It is a violent, intentional coup to overthrow God. Transgressor is someone who sins while looking up at God and shaking a fist at Him. Years ago, right, in the earlier days of the internet, there's this blasphemy challenge, right? So people would, would go and they would try to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
Because it, you know, it says in God's Word, it's the only sin he can't forgive. And so they'd film themselves declaring like Michael Scott, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Okay, now I don't think it's actually blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But that's another sermon for another day. But what that is, it is, it is a transgression. Because it is willfully mocking God and his rule and his might and intentionally shaking your fist as you're trying to sin against him. That's a, what a transgression is. So then after transgression, we have sin, and this is the most famous one. It's what we use the most often, probably just because it's short, it's easy to spell, right? So it's much, a little better here. But sin, it's often defined, right, as the missing of the mark. You've probably heard that if you've been in church. It's an arrow that doesn't quite hit the bullseye. That's what our sin is. It falls short of the perfect righteousness that is required. It's our mistakes, or it's even our imperfect righteousness, our imperfect attempts to be really righteous, but we don't quite get it. We do the right thing, but we do it with the wrong heart. Or maybe we even have the right heart, but we slip up in a moment of weakness. It's still sin. This is sin, what we talk about. And those, we might not want to call ourselves rebels against God, right? But all of us can admit that we are sinners who miss the mark. Finally, the last word David uses to describe his sin is that there is iniquity. Iniquity is the deliberate taking of another path. It's the guilt that we bear for choosing to go the wrong way. It's a mistake. It's not a mistake because it just gets lost. Iniquity decides, I want to do something different than what God asks. Sometimes when I'm correcting my son, you know, I'll ask him, well, hey, why did you do that, Calvin? I'll just say, well, because I want to. That's iniquity. Okay, it knows the right thing, it knows what it, what it should do, what maybe it, it should have done, but it wants to do something different. And so we have transgressors, we have sinners, and the iniquitous. It's a wide range of the wicked who are guilty. And you notice David doesn't rank them, though we might like to, right? And however we'll rank them, we'll figure out which one we are, and then that's, that's the least bad, and whoever the person we don't like, well, they're the worst. So that's how we're going to rank them out here. That's not what David does. But you notice what he says about each one of these sinners. Let's read verses 1 through 2 again. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there's no deceit. He uses three different verbs to describe, or he used three different nouns to describe sin, and now he uses three different verbs to describe the forgiveness of sin. Transgression is forgiven. The rebel who proudly spit at God as their transgressions forgiven. The word, verb for forgiveness, it literally means kind of lifted up or it's carried away. Your transgressions, they are lifted up high into the heavens like Christ up into his ascension. They go up and up and up and up until you can't see it anymore. Like if you were a kid and watched a balloon filled with helium that floated away and you just wanted to watch it until you couldn't see it anymore. That's where your transgressions go through Jesus. In Christ. I think of the Christian in the old story of Pilgrim's Progress. He's been carrying the burden of his sins and his transgressions, and it's symbolized by this big, massive burden and rock that's on his back. But when he gets to the cross, before he even does a thing, he just gets there and shows up, and that boulder just goes away. It rolls off, carried away, forgiven. And sin is covered. Our, our missing of the mark and, and it's fall, and falling short, it is covered up and concealed. Our sin is taken out of God's sight. Now, don't misunderstand what covering means, right? It doesn't mean that the sin is still there. Okay, don't picture putting a blanket over a heap of trash and old banana peels. 
Uh, don't picture pushing the mess under your bed or hiding it in the closet. That's not the covering that God does. It is taking our sins out to the trash can, covering it with a lid, and taking that trash out to the dump, covering it up with hills and trees till it's no longer smelly but something beautiful. It's covering up our ugly sins with the red paint of Christ's blood. And when you look, you don't see anything bleeding through. Or I like the, the message translation here. It says, your slate is wiped clean. Or the NET says, your sin is pardoned. It is gone. It's not just covered up and forgotten. And finally, he says, it counts no iniquity. It means that their iniquity is not imputed towards them, or it's not reckoned on their account. There is no record of these iniquities. When you stand before the judgment seat of God at the end of your life, which all of us will have to do to give an account, and the books and the records of our lives come out, everything we have done, every word we have spoken will be examined by God. And this will be a terror for many, because well, that's quite horrifying. But for those who have given their lives to Jesus, for those who have confessed their sins and been forgiven by Christ, they will be forgiven. When those believers' books are open, it will be almost like they're redacted. Words missing, pages blank. You'd be like your resume, and there's a gap on your head. Well, tell me about that. Tell me about this blank. I see there's whole years here where I don't see any activity. What were you doing? Oh, that was when Christ forgave me. And all my sins are forgotten. My iniquity does not count. God says he will have no record of it. So how do we obtain this kind of forgiveness? We do it by confessing our transgression, sins, and iniquity. In verse 5, David confesses. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, speaking to God, and I didn't try to cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Notice the elements of this confession. David confesses his sins to God. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my transgressions to the Lord. He goes right to the source. He doesn't just go to other people. He confesses to the one that he ultimately has sinned against. And David acknowledges his sin. He admits it. He doesn't lie about it. He doesn't try to explain it. He doesn't say, I'm really sorry, God, but here's what you need to understand before you know, we, we get into this a little further to give you some context. He acknowledges sin. He says, I didn't try to cover up my iniquity. Some of us want to cover up our sins. We want to push them in the closet where no one will see it. We want them to be out of sight where no one sees. But David stops trying to hide them. He just confesses and just admits it. And he admits the truth about the nature of his sin. Notice again, he uses all three words to describe himself. He doesn't try to justify himself. He says, my sin, my iniquity, my transgression. He admits it's all his he doesn't try to blame someone else and say it's really their sin. He doesn't try to say, well, I couldn't help it. He says, no, I'm a transgressor against God. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't try to say it's a mistake. He doesn't say, well, you know, this really doesn't reflect who I am in my heart. He says, no, I've sinned. He says, I'm a sinner and I'm a rebel against God who is guilty, and he takes all of it right to God the Father. And he confesses his sin because he knows the weight of unconfessed sin. He knows what it means to carry it. He describes this experience for us viscerally in verses 3 through 4, in case you thought I forgot it. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up by the heat of the summer. David was being crushed by his guilty conscience. 
Now, we don't know exactly what period of life he's talking about here. It doesn't tell us. We know this is David, so this is some of his sins. He could be talking about the guilt of his rape of Bathsheba, the murder of her husband Uriah. We know it was several months after he did that, before the prophet Nathan came and confronted him, and then he confessed. Months of knowing what he did, how he tried to cover up his sin, but was still wondering, well, I know some people know about it. Are they going to tell anyone? Do the people know? Does Nathan know? Do the prophets know? Are people going to talk? What's the scandal going to be? He could have been up at night groaning, just waiting to be found out. Or this could have been many of his other sins that we have recorded in the books of First and Second Samuel. But he mentions the, the silence in verse 3, for I kept silent. This is a reference to his refusal to audibly confess his sins to God. All day long he's groaning. He feels God's hand pressing on him. Your hand was heavy upon him. His conscience is bothering him. Just like that little boy from the story who knew he did something wrong and just doesn't know what to do with it. There's no relief available. It was like a heavy rock on his back that he's carrying around everywhere. And now we've seen this word kind of salah over and over again. What does it mean? Again, we, we don't know. It's some kind of liturgical, musical worship note. Um, the most helpful thing that I've found that, that I, I think of at least is to consider it just a pause for reflection or silence. So whenever you see it, just stop. Don't rush to the next verse. Maybe even read that, those verses again before it and meditate on it for a moment. I think it's a moment when the music should peel back. Maybe when the words of the prayer should stop and take a breath. And so David sits and he pauses, right, after reflecting on the, the bounding oppression of his sin. And he pauses again after five, after receiving forgiveness. This forgiveness is so incredible, Paul quotes it in the book of Romans. He quotes this psalm in Romans 4, 7 through 8, when he's speaking about Abraham. Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. It's the same word there that's being used just in the Greek. Now, Romans 5, 6, to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. It's the confession born of faith. Right? This confession I'm talking about is a confession that actually believes God. It's not a confession that's trying to earn salvation through a magic incantation or through works or through doing something. It's not a confession that's just trying to clear its conscience. It is a confession of faith. There was a man named James Washington who once confessed his sins. He was serving 15 years for a prison sentence when all of a sudden he started having seizures. So he was in the infirmary, he was terrified, and he thought that he was going to die. And so he called over a guard, and he confessed and said, I got something I've got to get off my conscience, and you need to hear this. I killed someone, and I beat her to death. And then he confessed his crime. Because years later, he'd murdered another woman, and he was suspected. They thought he did it, but they couldn't ever find any proof. And so here he finally confesses it. However, he uh, survived and lived. And then after, he tried to take his confession back and say he was just under the influence of, of drugs. He didn't really mean it, especially when he's in court again being charged with another murder. Okay, that's not a true confession. That's a confession that just wants to clear your conscience and, and feel good or alleviate your guilt. It's not a confession of faith in Jesus, knowing that he is the only one who can bring forgiveness of your sins. But the true confession... For sinners, no matter how bad, no matter how many, will always find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. 
And God doesn't just forgive sinners and leave them alone. What I love is he gives us further blessings. Point number two, if you're keeping notes in your bulletin, is that God delivers and guides forgiven saints. So point number two is that God delivers and guides forgiven saints. If you want to go to the next slide for me, Rob. Um, After receiving forgiveness, we're no longer called sinners, but we are called saints. And it's something that we earn, not because we work some miracles or because the Catholic Church went through their long process to say, okay, you can be a saint now. All of us, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're a declared saint. It is a status given to you by God. There's nothing you did to earn it. Jesus did it for you. And God does more than just forgive us. He then delivers us and guides us for the rest of our lives. Verse 6, therefore, let anyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So again, we can all be considered godly, not by our our righteous actions, but by the blood of Jesus. And what's interesting, if you look again, you'll see from this point on, sin is never mentioned again in this psalm. You can look, you won't find the word, any of those words anywhere. Not a single time are you going to see the words transgression or sin or iniquity. They've been banished from the psalm, just like they were banished from your life by the blood of Jesus. Forgiven and not counted. And so all of us should pray. We should be confessing our sins. We should be running to God all the time as often as we sin. Because there will not always be time to confess. Notice he says, when you may be found. After you die and are standing to the throne of God, it is too late. You will not have infinite time. And none of us know when that day will come. But if you are alive and you're listening, there is still time for you to confess your sins. God may be found. You can be forgiven. But David describes the judgment of God. He describes it like rushing waters. And the rest of verse 6, he says, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. I want you to picture a flood coming at you. Or the immenseness of the ocean, but it's a tsunami. Picture a, a low valley with you at the bottom, and there's two mountainous hills, and there's no way out. And here comes the flood of rushing waters. I, I picture uh, the 40-foot hole. It's a, a trail in Wichita Mountain Wildlife Refuge. Only been there, there one time, but I thought it was pretty cool. The, the trail I went, it went all the way kind of the top of this little valley canon or canyon. And down in the middle, it just kind of keeps getting taller and taller. I was surprised how big up it went. And usually there's some water there. I've been told there's a waterfall. When I was there, there was no water there. There's a lot of people at the bottom just walking around having fun. But I want you to, to picture yourself if you've been there at the bottom of that canyon. And now all in the walls, the cliffs, it's almost like 100 feet over your head if you're there at the bottom. And I'll picture being there when the water starts to rush back in, not a trickle, but a flash flood, eight feet of water coming right at you. It's too late. There's nowhere to run. Can't go fast enough. You can't climb high enough, quick enough. If you don't confess your sins when you die, you're going to be standing there in that canyon with the flood of God's judgment coming at you. Confess while he may be found. But if you confess the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with sorts of deliverance. If you confess, God is a cave of safety way above that water line, that he will pick you up and put you there. He's a safe place that you can flee from the waters of judgment. No matter how serious the storm, there is no water that can reach you. This is not just, I, I think, about the deliverance of sin and death, though it is. And it's also about how God guides us to safety. Man, when the floods and the storms of life come, He is a place we can hide. When the waters of suffering start to rise, we have a high ground we can go to where they won't reach us. And when we pray, our, our God is our guide and He answers and saves us. 
We can be like Noah and his family saved from the flood on the earth. Like Moses and Israel who crossed through the Red Sea while Pharaoh and his army were drowned by the same water. We can be like Joshua walking through the River Jordan on, on dry land or Peter who walked on top of the waters. Be like Jesus and with Jesus who calms the storm. The cross is the cave that we can hide in. The cross of Christ is the ark above the flood that keeps us safe. The cross is the only place that we can find forgiveness and deliverance. And at the end of verse 7, he says, you know, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. You notice here, God is the one who actually shouts over us, not us at least in, in this verse, that he is the one who shouts for joy. He's, it's describing like the congregation shouting for joy at the temple, at a great song with exuberance. And that God shouts for joy like an army after a fierce battle is won and the enemy flees and they're filled with joy. Those are the shouts of deliverance. He shouts so that we know we're safe, that he delivers. Our God does not just save us, wipe off our sins, you know, pat us on the back and then leave and say, okay, good luck, your turn now, I've done my part. No, he continues to deliver us and he continues to guide us. Verses 8 and 9, it changes who's speaking. It's no longer the voice of David, now this is the voice of God speaking to us. And God says, I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way that you should go. So God speaks and he's going to help us. He will instruct us and teach us. He's the one who will become our guide. It's like a tour guide when you're in a foreign land. You need some help. You don't know where you're going. He's our teacher who guides us through the new material we don't quite understand yet. He's like the tutor who comes and helps us when we don't know what to do and we're stuck. We need extra guidance. And what does he teach us? He teaches us in the way that we should go. He teaches us where our lives should head. He teaches us the paths that we should walk on. He tells us where it's safe to go. He warns us where the quicksand is. He knows the places that are too dangerous. And rest of it, he says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That he tells us, that he will counsel us, that he will continue to teach us. He won't just leave us alone. It won't just give us a good start, you know, tell us at the beginning of the path, and then it's a maze, so don't get lost. He is with us. His eye is upon us. He watches over us. He's not a parent who's tired and just staring at their phone. He's not distracted while we wander off and head out the front door. His eyes are on you. He sees what you're facing in your life, and he wants to help you. But so often we reject his guidance and help, don't we? Verse 9 describes, don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which has to be curbed with a bit or a brittle and won't stay near you. It says, don't be like a horse that ain't going to listen. Okay, the bit and the brittle, um, you know, I'm not very agricultural, so someone, maybe Sydney others can correct me later if I get something wrong here. It's the stuff you put in a horse's mouth, right? So that you can guide it. You can tell it where you want it to go. So God says, don't be like a mule where I constantly have to be yanking on it because you're going the wrong way. Okay, don't be like the horse that is wandering off. And if I don't tie you to a tree, I'm going to have to go and find you. Okay, maybe if you don't know much about horses, picture a dog that never obeys and is poorly trained, does whatever it wants. It thinks it's the king of the pack. Okay, or picture a cat. It doesn't matter what you say to it. It ain't going to listen to you and obey you. It's just going to do what it's going to do. Okay, God says, don't be like that. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to guide you. Listen to me. And he wants to guide us, but it's up to us if we're going to listen. Will we heed his voice? 
The assumption is that God is talking to you. If you are a believer in this room, if you put your faith in Christ, God is guiding you. His eye is upon you. His voice and the Holy Spirit is inside of you and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. You can hear His voice. You can hear it anytime you read His Word. The question is not if God is helping you. The question is, are you listening to Him? The question is, are you listening to His counsel and His guidance? Or are you being a horse that's wandering off? Now, in light of everything that God does for us, the forgiveness that He gives to confessing sinners, the guidance and deliverance that He gives us, our third point is kind of our application. What should we do? Well, it seems a little obvious. You maybe have even guessed it already. We should joyfully go to God for forgiveness. should joyfully go to God for forgiveness. Verses 10 and 11, they kind of function as a summary and application of the psalm. So verse 10 begins by telling us, well, what's going to happen if we don't seek forgiveness? Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Our unconfessed and unrepentant sin, it leads to sorrow. The guilt alone will crush you. And not just that, but you can't handle your own sin. Okay, 1 Corinthians 6.20 reminds us, you are not your own, but were bought with a price. Okay, the world tells us that we are our own. World or culture will tell you guilt is just manufactured. It's a result of Christian guilt in your upbringing. You should just forgive yourself. Just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get over it. The world wants you to believe that your sin and guilt is something that you can handle and take care of. You can't. You simply cannot. Your sin is like a weight that you can't lift. Your sin, it's like a car that's stuck on ice whose wheels aren't spinning. And no matter how hard you push it, you ain't going to get it up that hill. It's a stain that you can't remove no matter how many times it goes through the wash. You cannot give yourself the forgiveness that you desperately need. Your gods can't give you forgiveness. You can't handle it. But Jesus can. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Trust in the Lord and you can receive the steadfast love. That God will come and He will bring joy. And we show that we trust Him by confessing our sins. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. We can trust God with our sin. That we can confess, we can receive His forgiveness, and then we can sing, we can rejoice. It's a good thing. This is why so often, right, churches that go through a liturgy may have a a moment of confession. Right after it, they then proclaim the gospel and forgiveness, and then let's sing. Because look what God just did. We know that He forgave us. If you confessed it and you meant it, we can rejoice and our hearts can be upright because our conscience is clean and our sin has not been reckoned against us. It won't count any longer. The question we have to wrestle with here is where do you go when you sin? All of us sin. We We all sin every day. There's sin within an hour of leaving this room. Some of you much quicker than that. Some of you before you get out. Some of you before I finish. <laughs> right? But wh- what are you going to do when it happens? Okay, are you going to crumple and fall into shame and pity and beating yourself up on how horrible you are? That even while you're in church, you're still yelling and filled with anger and bitterness and sin? Or are you going to run and hide because you don't want anyone to know how really sinful you are? Are you going to head to addictions and comforts? Are you going to seek to drown your sorrows in pill, alcohol, food, well, anything else you can find that will bring relief? The world has plenty to offer you. It says will help. 
You gonna run to people who are just gonna affirm you, tell you your sin is fine, you got it, don't worry, just love yourself, it's all good. You have nothing to fear. Or are you gonna go to Jesus? Because listen, when you sin, you can run to Jesus. When you find yourself drunk or high again, you don't have to wait till you sober up, you can go right to Jesus. When you're caught in adultery or pornography, you can run to Jesus. Whatever sin it is you have, go to Jesus. Why don't you picture a child who's in trouble, right? And they get drinking at a party. Or a tr- someone who's just gotten pregnant or got someone else pregnant. And they're filled with fear on how their parents are going to respond. I don't know if I want to confess this, but I think I have to. Okay, you don't have to wonder how Jesus will act when you confess your sins to him. You don't need to wonder how he will receive you. You don't need to wonder what he will say. You can walk right into the throne room of heaven and the kingdom of God with joy. And you can confess your sins and you hear Jesus say, I forgive you. You can confess your sins and you can hear Jesus say, I love you, my son. I love you, my daughter. You can confess your sins to Jesus and hear there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is why we can have joy, and this is why we can have joy even in the midst of our sin, and we can and we should joyfully confess our sins to Jesus because he is the only one who can bring salvation. That is why he came and why he died on the cross for us on our behalf because we couldn't do it. Our sin is too strong, our guilt is too deep, the stain won't come out. But Jesus shed his blood for you and for me to wipe away all of our sins. So go to him. If you don't know Jesus, go to him. He will forgive you. He loves you. If you do know Jesus, continually, joyfully go to him. He has adopted you as a son and his daughter, and there's forgiveness for your sins. Go to Jesus. So, summary, where have we been this morning? We reminded that God forgives confessing sinners, but you got to confess. It's not universal. God delivers and he guides the saints, and so what should we do? We should joyfully go to him for forgiveness, knowing that we will find it. I want to close the story. The North African church father, um, Augustine, he said that this was actually his favorite psalm, Psalm 32. He preached it often and he would pray it, and sometimes he would mostly end up praying it through tears and through weeping. And when he was in his 70s, the Vandals, who maybe you don't know their empire, but you know them. That's why we talk about vandalism. It comes from them. So they invaded the African Roman Empire and they sieged Hippo where Augustine lived. And he found himself after months in this siege, sick in bed with a heavy fever. It was probably malaria. And there he laid there in a sick bed, completely surrounded by enemies who who was certain would kill him because he was a leader of the church and would kill any Christians who didn't deny Jesus and convert And so he asked his fellow priests if they would write Psalm 32 on his walls. If they would write it with other psalms, but particularly this one. And so as he laid there often alone, dying, filled with pain, in his darkest moments at the end of his life, he found comfort in this psalm, remembering that our God forgives sinners. Now, you don't need to paint this psalm on your wall, but you could. But you should paint it on your heart. Remember that there is forgiveness for your sins. As long as there is breath in your life, in your lungs, it's not too late. Confess your sins, go to Jesus, and find forgiveness.
invite our worship team to come up one last time and I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, I, I ask that you would forgive us of our sins. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, I, I ask that you would help forgive us of our sins, of not confessing them, of hiding them, uh, of convincing ourselves our sins aren't that big of a deal, of trying to cover up our sins, of looking for people to affirm our sins, for, for running to other places to think that they could help us. Forgive us for all the times that we ran anywhere other than you. Lord, we, we are so grateful for the forgiveness that you offer. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to, to see your beauty, your love, and your never-ending grace. That it doesn't matter if we just left your room, we can run right back in and confess again because your forgiveness won't run out. Your mercies are new every morning. Lord, would we be a people, not who are perfect because that day won't come till you return or we die, but would we be a people that when we sin, we confess our sins, we confess them with joy knowing there's forgiveness. Would we be people marked by our repentance? Would we would be marked by our faith in Jesus and in your grace. And if there are any listening who don't know your grace, Lord, would you draw them to yourself through your beauty and your wonder and your never-ending love? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. In light of our forgiveness that we've received from sin, why don't we praise our Savior and His never-ending grace. Amen. I want to encourage you, too, to come back next week. Um, Rob and I have been chatting and working on a sermon a little bit, and I already know part of where it's going, and I'm really excited about it. So if he changes some of it, I told him I'm going to steal it and like to preach it for myself. So hope you'll be there. Uh, hear this benediction from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace.